Today's episode will be reviewing Chapter 3 of Alice in Wonderland. There is no profanity in this episode, so it is family-friendly. Hi, I'm Jen, and this is Talking in Bed, the podcast where I discuss niche interests, burning questions, movies, TV shows, foreign languages, and other sundry topics. If you like unfocused, opinion-based shows, then stick around. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today we are reviewing Chapter 3 of Alice in Wonderland. So let's start off with a little recap of Chapter 2. I feel like that helps us, helps me know kind of what we're, what we left behind, what we're getting into. So a recap of Chapter 2. Alice gets really tall, over nine feet high, because she was eating those little cakes in the box. She begins crying. She cries so much that the tears get to be about four inches deep. Then the white rabbit appears and rushes past her, drops a fan and some gloves. She begins fanning herself because she's hot. This makes her shrink down again to about two feet high. And she's like continuing to shrink. This is all happening in the hall of doors. If you remember the hall of doors. She realizes it's, it's the fan that's making her shrink. She drops it um, right before she kind of like she's like super tiny by then but she falls into a pool of salt water which she realizes are her tears from earlier she finds a mouse swimming in the water and has a conversation with it she offends it several times by talking about cats catch cats and dogs catching mice and rats and then she and the mouse and all the other animals that fell into the water decide to head to shore so it's chapter two And this is a recap of chapter three. The group emerges onto the bank and tries to decide how to get dry. The methods used involve telling a boring or dry story about William the Conqueror and running a caucus race. The story doesn't do anything to dry them, but the race somehow does. Uh, Everyone's declared the winner and Alice is chosen by the dodo to give out prizes. After that, the mouse she'd been talking to in chapter two tells the tale of why he doesn't like cats and dogs. Alice offends him again and he leaves. Then she upsets all the other animals and they leave. And Alice is alone again at the end of the chapter. Initially, when I read this chapter, I felt like Alice was outshined by the other characters and the events of the chapter. And I really wanted to keep getting to know her and learning more about how she interprets Wonderland and her experience there. I really liked um, looking into her internal thoughts and kind of just hearing herself talk to herself because she just says such funny things to herself. So I really missed that in this chapter, like upon the first and second reading of it. But as I was writing about it and thinking about it and continuing to look at the chapter, I started to realize that you do continue getting to know her as a character. It's just in the context of how she fits in or doesn't fit into Wonderland and its characters. I think this chapter was intended by Carol or his editor Uh, or, you know, both to kind of give us a little break from focusing solely on Alice and just allow us to find out more about Wonderland and its characters. Um, 
you know, chapter one and chapter two gave us a lot of character development of Alice talking to herself and the mouse. So now we needed to just get some more insight into Wonderland's characters. Um, I'd really gotten used to those little like asides from Carol and Alice talking to herself. And this chapter plays out very differently. And it feel it felt less personal for me when I first read it. Um, but there was one, you know, as I was thinking about all this, there was one line that kind of came to the surface of providing some insight. Um, there's a line in the beginning of the chapter that says, Alice felt very comfortable with the animals very soon after getting onto shore and she even ends up in an argument with a lorry uh and it ends with him saying that he's older than her and must know better and i i still wish that we could have gotten to read that argument instead of just being told about it because i feel like the conversation between Alice and the mouse in chapter two, it was a silly conversation, which is going to be like a big marker of the book is like silliness. But it also revealed a lot about her character. You know, those social faux pas that she makes are like a big part of it. And it's part of not just how, you know, Alice interprets the characters that she meets and how things work in Wonderland, but how the characters interpret Alice and the things that she says um and so I felt like in just hearing about the argument with the Lori rather than reading a dialogue between them we missed out on some of that character development um but what came forward from the that mention of her feeling that comfortable was that there's this level of familiarity and total willingness to talk to animals with ease. Uh, and that shows some of how Alice kind of finds herself fitting in easily in Wonderland. She's not afraid to talk to the animals. And further on in the chapter, she even tries to engage with their like way of life, shall we say, in a respectful way. Um, so I, I felt there were more critiques of this chapter that I had. Um, but the interactions between the characters definitely make me laugh. The pacing of the dialogue feels very quick, has a natural kind of beat to it. Um, and it, it paints some very interesting mental images. The illustrations are also fantastic. These illustrations are by Sir John Tenniel, which most, uh, these are just the classic illustrations that most people know um, from Alice in Wonderland. Uh, so that also really helps to, you know, of course, paint a picture. And I'm just realizing that at the beginning of the book, sorry, there was a phone ringing in the hallway for the apartment building for some reason. At the beginning of the book, Alice says that uh, she doesn't know how like somebody could read a book without pictures or conversations in it. And th so this is a book that Alice would like, actually. <laughs> just It's just coming, popping into my head right now. Um, but the entire, you know, conversation 
up until they begin running on in the caucus race it's so funny and silly I just like how they um the characters kind of make little digs at each other and have these really like petty reactions to things that is very uh it's humorous it's just funny it's still it still works for me even you know all these years later um okay so the mouse so uh alice has the little argument with the lori then everybody's trying to decide how to get dry the mouse who uh, the book says is a person of authority. I thought it was interesting that he used the word person for the mouse. Uh, Tells everyone to sit down and he's got something that'll really dry them off. And he starts to tell some history about William the Conqueror. And this is obviously, this this chapter has kind of a lot of parodies and, and, um, would you say, like literary jokes to it. I guess. So this is obviously a boring for dry kind of play on that concept. So a fun fact is that the portion of the history of William the Conqueror that is told here is the same portion that Alice's sister is reading out loud to her on the riverbank in the 1951 Disney movie that doesn't happen in the book in the book her sister is just reading quietly next to her but I think it's nice that the Disney movie included you know they have part of this caucus race scene in the Disney movie but not the whole thing uh, because I think the movie wanted to stay focused on Alice you know make sure that she stays in in the spotlight whereas she has to share it a bit in this chapter with the other characters um but I think it's nice that they really tried to take these uh, moments from the source material and and weave it throughout the movie. You know, it gives the movie, it just keeps it connected to the source material in a really authentic way. So I really liked that. And when I read it myself, you know, anytime I read that, I think of the scene of her sister reading it out loud. Um, in the movie so uh, and and, um, what I also liked about this portion of the William the Conqueror history is that it's obviously something she's learned in school right that comes up a couple of times she and it just reiterates the fact that she's a kid right and she's in school so in you know when she's falling down the rabbit hole she's talking about uh, what are the people in Australia called antipathies or something? And she's trying to figure out the difference between latitude and longitude. And, um, you know, here she's obviously learning some history. But the funny thing is, is that um, in chapter two, she she thinks that the mouse is French when it doesn't respond to her right away. And she says, oh, it must have come over with William the Conqueror who came over from France. And in that chapter, when she thinks that to herself about the mouse, Carol tells us in parentheses that although Alice knew a lot about history, she didn't have a really good sense of how long ago things had happened. So I looked it up and William the Conqueror lived from 1028 to 1087. So like 800 years prior. Uh, And it's just funny that to think of her learning things in history class, but kind of only half paying attention, half listening like me like I was in school, 
and uh, thinking that this is a current ongoing, you know, situation with William the Conqueror. (laughs) So I found that um, that's a really funny thing that you, you know, uh, certainly as an American, but just us living so far after this book was published, maybe English people do know those kind of dates. They would get why that's so funny, but I had to look that up to really (laughs) understand that it's, you know, quite, quite a long ways away. And she's really like checked out of how long things have taken. So, uh, this chapter, I think, obviously because we're getting to know the characters in Wonderland more, it really gives us more of a glimpse into the silliness of Wonderland. So boring stories might have the chance of making you dry and running in a circle makes you dry and everyone's a winner. Those kind of things that, um, you know, don't really happen in the real world. (laughs) Like, I feel like if you sit long enough and listen to a story, you'll you'll definitely dry off eventually. But running around in wet clothes will just make you sweaty in damp clothes, which is like a horrible feeling. Um, And when I was a kid and I read this chapter, obviously I had no idea what a caucus race was. The word caucus didn't mean anything to me. Um, so in my research you know, for the episode, um, the notes in the book and also an analysis for the chapter on spark notes told me that the caucus race and the way that animals behave is meant to be a humorous parody of politics at the time. Uh, but just reading the material and taking it on face value and putting myself in a kid's shoes reading it, I can't say that that comes through really strongly. It's kind of like with the poem in... I think it was chapter two, How Doth the Little, when she recites that to try and see what she still knows from school. It's something that's kind of lost to time, you know. Um, However, that said, even if modern readers don't have the the, uh, direct references, they don't know the direct references, I still think it works because you just take it as, oh, it's something silly that they're doing. You know, it's a race that doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's just something silly. So it, it still, it ages well, I must say. Um, interestingly, this chapter contains what I would think of as the first real reference to the fact that the readership are likely to be children. Um, because Carol says in parentheses, uh, when it's dis- you know, um, uh, what is it? The, the mouse starts talking about William the Conqueror and he interrupts himself after a couple of lines and says, uh, how are you, are you drying off? She says that to Alice and she says, no, it's not really working. And the dodo decides, okay, we're going to do a caucus race. And, um, so Carol says in parentheses, that the reader might like to try doing a caucus race some winter day, which, of course, like, adults might do that, but I don't know that adults of the time would have done that. Although they, you know, Victorians liked parlor games. They certainly weren't averse to games. But I feel like there was probably a pretty clear distinction between reading material for children and reading material for adults and certainly how you would, like, engage with that material um the description of the caucus race is described so that readers can do it themselves and then it's like 
these really loosely it's a loosely structured quote-unquote game the runners are you know like the dodo marks out a circ a kind of circular course it says the shape doesn't matter then the runners are just placed randomly along the course they can start and stop whenever they want and they just run for about a half an hour um which I think would be a really fun thing for kids. I like the idea of Victorian children coming in from like a snowy day in a, you know, the Victorian era was like when the Little Ice Age was happening, which I've talked about on this show. I have an episode on the Little Ice Age, uh, you know, when Charles Dickens was writing something like Christmas Carol. So it would have been really cold in Victorian England. And I think it, I love this idea of um, Victorian children coming in from playing in the snow and running around the living room or the parlor room or whatever for a half an hour to like warm themselves back up in like a crackling fire, and, you know, whatever. I really like that um, mental image and it would really like tire them out, which is the main thing with kids <laughs> tire them out you know and what I really thought was funny is that everyone's a winner afterwards so after about a half an hour um the dodo says okay the race is over and then everyone asks who's the winner and um Carol says that the dodo stood there for a while with its finger uh, pressed against its forehead thinking then it says in parentheses, the position in which you usually see Shakespeare in pictures of him. And then eventually says everyone has won and everyone gets a prize. Um, and what? I, I thought that was very funny because I'd love to hear like baby boomers com who complained about participation trophies in the 90s. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear them hear what they think about participation trophies in the 1860s. So uh, everyone is due to get a prize and um, they must say like, I, I don't have that written down, but they must say who, who's going to give us the prizes. And the Dodo just without question points at Alice and says uh, of her, her, of course. Um, and I have to wonder why, you know, um, why Alice of all people was she chosen by the dodo the obvious answer is that she kind of stands out from the other animals she's not like a obviously humans are animals we're, but you know she's not like a a winged or furry animal uh, I think more so Carol needed a way to bring her back into the focus we'd kind of diverged from her a little bit and so it was just a nat a more natural way to bring her back into the focus um I don't know that there's a more compelling like in-universe reason for it so that kind of moment you know it's things like this and the focus on Alice's character being traded out for the focus on Wonderland's characters there are kind of illogical transitions from one location to another those are moments where I think the the writing could have been stronger here I need more of a it doesn't have to be logical it, it can be silly I'm not trying to be a grown-up about it you know? it can be silly 
And I know that we're kind of in a utopian fantasy novel, or maybe it's dystopian, I don't know. Uh, a little bit of both. But I know we're in a fantasy, we're in a, a dream thing. It doesn't have to be logical in our in the sense of our world, but it needs to be logical in the sense of Wonderland. But I know that Wonderland just doesn't have logic. You know, it's illogical, right? Um, I just would I would have liked to see more development of give me some kind of a, a rule to hold on to, you know. Um, at the same time, you could say that it just it shows her. It shows how much she's able to fit in in this world, right? There, so um, and and her willingness to be accepted without question. She doesn't question why she's being picked. She just is picked, and she just goes along with it. Uh, so the prizes that Alice manages to find are comfits, described in the notes in this edition as sweet meats, one word. Now, you might be more well-versed than, than I am, but I didn't know what that was, even though, you know, even as a kid, I don't know that I understood what it was. I think I thought of it, I think I knew it was something with fruit, but I thought of it as like, like dried berries almost. Um, but I looked up, uh, this is an article by Trisha Christensen. There was no date on the article from delightedcooking.com. What are sweet meats? The term sweet meats usually refers to candy or sweet confections, and it is often shortened simply to sweets. They likely first began as a way of preserving fruit and or nuts with sugar. Since sugar acts as a preservative, the process is making candied fruit or nuts. The process of making candied fruit or nuts might aid in keeping some food items past the point where they would naturally decay. So she has this little box of sweet meats that are comfits that um carol tells us like the salt water managed to not get into the box um and as this little prize giving scene goes on i started to pick up on a sense of camaraderie uh between the whole group that that helped me process the chapter a little bit more and kind of what its function was in the book um so they all want prizes for themselves and then they insist that alice needs a prize too which i felt like implied a kind of kindness and fairness between all of them so alice is presented her prize by the dodo and the prize is a thimble that she also had in her pocket uh which she hands to the dodo after he asks her if she has anything else in her pockets. So she is given the prize by the dodo. He makes a, a short but very kind of serious speech. They're all, all the animals are crowded around her. They treat it like a very serious, you know, ceremony. She thinks it's kind of silly. She doesn't want to laugh, but she acts as solemnly as she can about it. So in that moment, um, I think it would have been interesting to get maybe um, she doesn't have to say it out loud to herself, but just 
give me one internal thought that she's having so that I can get back into her character? What's an internal thought that she's having in this moment that makes her want to laugh? Uh... You know, I mean, he's telling us, but I kind of want to experience it. Carol tells us that she wants to laugh, but she doesn't because everybody's so serious. So she does her best to be serious, too. But I want to experience it firsthand with the character. You know what I mean? So she takes the thimble. Then everybody eats their calm fits. And that's like a whole to do. The big ones can't taste it. The little ones are choking on it. After that's all said and done, they all sit down again and they beg the mouse for more stories, which was odd to me because the story that, you know, the William the Conqueror history wasn't like riveting. I mean, it was intended to be boring, right? So I thought it was funny that uh, or kind of didn't didn't totally make sense to me, like why they would uh, the whole group of them would want to hear more stories from the mouse that was another moment where it kind of just felt like oh we just need to move the story along so we're just going to have the characters do this I don't know that it necessarily felt true to for me uh but it certainly communicates this sense of them really being a unified group all of them sit down without being told to and want the mouse to tell them more stories. So that um, really unified way of thinking that they have now developed in the chapter plays, you know, an important role further on. Um, But what this really sets up is like what I would consider the magnum opus of the chapter, which is the mouse's tail. And this is a part of the book that requires reading it uh, you know, in the as it's written to fully understand it, but it's pretty easy to describe. So the mouse has mentioned that uh, he said in the pool of tears to Alice um, that he's going to tell her why his family has always hated cats and dogs. And when they sit down, Alice reminds him that he promised he would tell her. So he says, mine is a long and a sad tale. She responds, it is a long tail, certainly, then looks at his physical mouse tail and says, but why do you call it sad? He doesn't answer her. He just starts telling the tale. And then Alice imagines the tail, T-A-L-E, to be in the shape of the mouse's physical tail. And that's how it's written in the book. So the poem curves and bends and goes from thicker to really, really tiny words at the end, you know, very thin at the tip of the tail. Uh, And I really think that Carol, who's obviously a creative person, had the idea for this poem and having it written in this particular way and then kind of created a scene where this could happen and fleshed it out to have it work in the story which is fine it's a creative idea I like it when writers use the space of the page in a less linear way so perfectly allowable but I to me that is kind of the driving force of the uh of the chapter so um the mouse she's looking at his tail as he's talking I guess rather than looking up at him, 
And he gets upset and he says, you're not paying attention. Uh, which I feel like is probably gives us a glimpse into how Alice is treated in school. If we're still in kind of, this is a dream she's having and it's, you know, dreams are uh, just a mishmash of our, our daily lives, right? And um, <clears throat> she says, uh, uh, yes, I was. I, you got to the fifth bend in the tale, I think, in the T-A-I-L tale. And he says, I had not, N-O-T. And she says, oh, a not, I'll help, K-N-O-T. So it's more of this kind of play on words. And he storms off because she's just being ridiculous and he can't tolerate it anymore. <laughs> And she calls after him, trying to get him to come back. She says to the other animals that she wishes Dinah, her cat, was here because she'd be able to catch the mouse. And she's so good at catching things. And she, she'll she catch a bird as soon as look at it. This obviously upsets the other creatures. A lot of them are birds. And they all start making excuses for why they have to head off. I think the excuses was were really funny for me. I like the idea of... um. People even back then having to find like awkward, you know, like a way, an excuse for getting out of an awkward social thing. So it's another moment where Alice was fitting in so well, seamlessly, and then she just, you know, says the wrong thing. And not just to one person, you know, not with just one character, but to the whole group of characters, she upsets them just by being oblivious and not thinking before she speaks. And that really started to click in a different way for me. You know, and this has, she's brought up Dinah, I think in every chapter, Dinah comes up, this cat that she loves so much. And she's always so excited to talk about her cat. And it continues <laughs> leading to big disappointments for her so all the animals leave and she's alone and she begins crying again because she's feeling extremely misunderstood and lonely and wondering if she'll ever see her cat again and I liked that as a way of impressing upon us again that she's really a child she's not sad about her parents or her siblings she really just wants to see the cat again and it's like that short-sightedness of a little kid who doesn't quite grasp the seriousness of the situation. They just want, uh, they're blanky. You know, they just want the thing that makes them comfortable when they're uncomfortable. Um, but we don't stay with this discomfort. It's one sentence that she's feeling anything or, or that we get any sense of her experience in the moment. So after having a chapter where we really didn't get a lot of her personal internal experience, having one sentence in reference to this pretty big emotion that she's feeling, she's like abandoned by these people that she started to feel really close to, you know, at least to have some feeling of um, being accepted by them. And then they leave her because she, you know, says the wrong thing um so it kind of it, it bothered me a bit that there was only one sentence given to this experience she was having it just says uh you know after it says she felt misunderstood and lonely it says 
In a little while, however, she again heard a little pattering of footsteps, and then it goes on to say that she thought the mouse was returning. And then I started to realize that maybe, you know, less is more, and um, I started to think about her interactions throughout the chapter. Um, And she ends the chapter in a very different place than where she starts. She ends the chapter feeling out of place and abandoned uh, in the beginning and throughout. She's accepted and um, finds it really easy to interact with the other characters. She's very included. She even has like kind of an important role in the chapter is giving out the, um, the prizes So when she tries to share more about her world, this cat that she loves and misses so much and it, you know, scares the characters away, it probably leaves her with a sense of betrayal. You know, and uh, just kind of like a painful sense of feeling divided from them. Um, But I know it's a kid's book, you know, that time period. I don't know what... (laughs) How deeply they were delving into the emotions of children, I don't really know. Uh, It's for kids, and and I realize that enough of it is is laid out for us as the reader. It just requires a little work on... It required a little work on my part to really find the emotional arc of the chapter. Which is not the worst thing in a book, that's fine. You know, it was interesting for me to really uh engage with it in a deeper way than than just sort of passively reading about the events of the chapter and and moving on i did have a harder time feeling excited about this chapter in my first few readings because it was so much more focused on the other characters but i can see that it plays a role in the story And I'm interested to see how that theme continues of her being accepted and then outcast, cast out, being big and being small. So kind of these um, opposite feelings and experiences that she is going to go through throughout the book and I'm I'm wondering you know at the end of the book if that's going to give us a deeper sense of what the story is about and it might just be about uh her growing up as a child you know um this is such this is a book that's going to become so kind of heavy with other characters and their silliness and how Alice interacts with them, how they interact with her. Um, that, you know, I'll kind of have to keep like digging in to these more subtle layers, I suppose, in order to discover more about it than just kind of, um, you know, just reading it on a superficial level in a passive way so I am interested in how that's going to uh develop for me as a reader and you know in terms of Alice's 
character and where we will end up with her at the at the end of the book if she'll have learned anything if she'll have grown in a certain way from this adventure um okay so that was chapter three of alice in wonderland um the reading for chapter three is going to follow this there's going to be a little music in between to let you know that you're heading into a a reading it's like a 10 it was a quick chapter like 10 minutes i think um it was a really hard chapter for me to read i had to do about three or four takes to get it without me stumbling over my words i had like a tough time reading that one um so i hope that you will join me or keep an eye out for chapter four i'm trying to release these as fast as i can but it does take me you know time to kind of mull things over and really you know provide give you a re a review of the chapter that's like meaningful you know um so if you are enjoying this series you can email me and tell me if you have an idea for something else you would like me to review in the future you can email me that will be in the description thank you so much for listening and i hope that you will join me again as we continue through wonderland bye chapter three a caucus race and a long tail they were indeed a queer-looking party that assembled on the bank the birds with draggled feathers the animals with their fur clinging close to them and all dripping wet, cross, and uncomfortable. The first question, of course, was how to get dry again. They had a consultation about this, and after a few minutes it seemed quite natural to Alice to find herself talking familiarly with them, as if she had known them all her life. Indeed, she had quite a long argument with the lorry, who at least turned sulky and would only say, I'm older than you and must know better, and this Alice would not allow without knowing how old it was. And as the lorry positively refused to tell its age, there was no more to be said. At last, the mouse, who seemed to be a person of some authority among them, called out, Sit down, all of you, and listen to me. I'll soon make you dry enough. They all sat down at once in a large ring with the mouse in the middle. Alice kept her eyes anxiously fixed on it, for she felt sure she would catch a bad cold if she did not get dry very soon. Ahem said the mouse with an important air. Are you all ready? This is the driest thing I know. Silence all round, if you please. William the Conqueror, whose cause was favored by the Pope, was soon submitted to by the English, who wanted leaders, and had been of late much accustomed to usurpation and conquest. Edwin and Morcar, the Earls of Mercia and Northumbria, Ugh! said the lorry with a shiver. I beg your pardon, said the mouse, frowning, but very politely. Did you speak? Not I, said the lorry hastily. I thought you did, said the mouse. I proceed. Edwin and Morcar, the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, declared for him, and even Stigand, the patriotic archbishop of Canterbury, found it advisable. Found what? said the duck. Found it. The mouse replied rather crossly, Of course you know what it means. I know what it means well enough when I find a thing, said the duck. 
It's generally a frog or a worm. The question is, what did the archbishop find? The mouse did not notice this question, but hurriedly went on. Found it advisable to go with Edgar Atheling to meet William and offer him the crown. William's conduct at first was moderate, but the insolence of his Normans, how are you getting on now, my dear? It continued, turning to Alice as it spoke. As wet as ever, said Alice in a melancholy tone. It doesn't seem to dry me at all. In that case, said the dodo solemnly, rising to its feet, I move that the meeting adjourn for the immediate adoption of more energetic remedies. Speak English, said the eaglet. I don't know the meaning of half those long words, and what's more, I don't believe you do either. And the eaglet bent down its head to hide a smile. Some of the other birds tittered audibly. What I was going to say, said the dodo in an offended tone, was that the best thing to get dry would be a caucus race. What is a caucus race, said Alice. Not that she much wanted to know, but the dodo had paused as if it thought that somebody ought to speak, and no one else seemed inclined to say anything. Why, said the dodo, the best way to explain it is to do it. And as you might like to try the thing yourself some winter day, I will tell you how the dodo managed it. First, it marked out a race course in a sort of circle. The exact shape doesn't matter, it said. And then all the party were placed along the course here and there. There was no one, two, three in a way, but they began running when they liked and left off when they liked so that it was not easy to know when the race was over. However, when they had been running half an hour or so and were quite dry again, the dodo suddenly called out, The race is over! And they all crowded round it, panting and asking, But who has won? This question the dodo could not answer without a great deal of thought, and it stood for a long time with one finger pressed upon its forehead, the position in which you usually see Shakespeare in the pictures of him, while the rest waited in silence. At last the dodo said, Everybody has won, and all must have prizes. But who is to give the prizes? Quite a chorus of voices asked. Why, she, of course, said the dodo, pointing to Alice with one finger. And the whole party at once crowded round her, calling out in a confused way, Prizes! Prizes! Alice had no idea what to do, and in despair she put her hand in her pocket and pulled out a box of comfits. Luckily the salt water had not got into it, and handed them round as prizes. There was exactly one apiece all round. She must have a prize herself, you know, said the mouse. Of course, the dodo replied very gravely. What else have you got in your pocket? It went on, turning to Alice. Only a thimble, said Alice sadly. Hand it over here, said the dodo. Then they all crowded round her once more, while the dodo solemnly presented the thimble, saying, We beg your acceptance of this elegant thimble. And when it had finished this short speech, they all cheered. Alice thought the whole thing very absurd, but they all looked so grave that she did not dare to laugh. And as she could not think of anything to say, she simply bowed and took the thimble, looking as solemn as she could. The next thing was to eat the comfits. This caused some noise and confusion, as the large birds complained that they could not taste theirs, and the small ones choked and had to be patted on the back. 
However, it was over at last, and they sat down again in a ring and begged the mouse to tell them something more. You promised to tell me your history, you know, said Alice, and why it is you hate C and D, she added in a whisper, half afraid that it would be offended again. Mine is a long and a sad tale, said the mouse, turning to Alice and sighing. It is a long tale, certainly, said Alice, looking down with wonder at the mouse's tail. But why do you call it sad? And she kept on puzzling about it while the mouse was speaking, so that her idea of the tale was something like this. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, Let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have the trial, for really this morning I've nothing to do. Said the mouse to the cur, Such a trial, dear sir, with no jury or judge would be wasting our breath. I'll be judge, I'll be jury, said cunning old Fury. I'll try the whole cause and condemn you to death. You are not attending, said the mouse to Alice severely. What are you thinking of? I beg your pardon, said Alice very humbly. You had got to the fifth bend, I think. I had not, cried the mouse sharply and very angrily. A knot? said Alice, always ready to make herself useful and looking anxiously about her. Oh, do let me help to undo it. I shall do nothing of the sort, said the mouse, getting up and walking away. You insult me by talking such nonsense. I didn't mean it, pleaded poor Alice, but you're so easily offended, you know. The mouse only growled in reply. Please come back and finish your story. Alice called after it, and the others all joined in chorus. Yes, please do. But the mouse only shook its head impatiently and walked a little quicker. What a pity it wouldn't stay, sighed the lorry as it was quite a, as soon as it was quite out of sight. And an old crab took the opportunity of saying to her daughter, Ah, my dear, let this be a lesson to you never to lose your temper. Hold your tongue, ma said the young crab a little snappishly. You're enough to try the patience of an oyster. I wish I had our Dinah here. I know I do, said Alice aloud, addressing nobody in particular. She'd soon fetch it back. And who is Dinah, if I might venture to ask the question, said the lorry. Alice replied eagerly, for she was always ready to talk about her pet. Dinah's our cat, and she's such a capital one for catching mice, you can't think. And, oh, I, I wish you could see her after the birds. Why, she'll eat a little bird as soon as look at it. This speech caused a remarkable sensation among the party. Some of the birds hurried off at once. One old magpie began wrapping itself up very carefully, remarking, I really must be getting home. The night air doesn't suit my throat. And a canary called out in a trembling voice to its children, Come away, my dears. It's high time you're all in bed. On various pretexts, they all moved off, and Alice was soon left alone. I wish I hadn't mentioned Dinah, she said to herself in a melancholy tone. Nobody seems to like her down here, and I'm sure she's the best cat in the world. Oh, my dear Dinah, I wonder if I shall ever see you any more. And here poor Alice began to cry again, for she felt very lonely and low-spirited.
In a little while, however, she again heard a little pattering of footsteps in the distance, and she looked up eagerly, half hoping that the mouse had changed his mind and was coming back to finish his story.